Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Here are some facts that may surprise you. 80% of Fortune 500 executives, 85% of Supreme Court justices, and all but four presidents since 1825 have been fraternity members. Now, that's all Greek life to me, but not to my guest, Max Marshall. Max arrived on the campus of the College of Charleston in 2018, originally intending to investigate a small-time trafficking ring. But as he started reporting, it became clear the scope of the crimes was far bigger than what was made public, including several student deaths, a nationwide trafficking network, and the seizure of $21 million worth of black market Xanax. His comprehensive reporting is now in a new book, Among the Bros, a fraternity crime story published by Harper Books and available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Max Marshall, go to max-marshall.com and you can follow him on X at underscore will never tweet. And Max, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Why did you end up on the campus of the College of Charleston to begin with? What brought you there? So yeah, I was in college at the same time as all the guys in this book, 2012 to 2016. I was not at the College of Charleston. I went to college at, at Columbia, but I grew up in the South. Basically, all of my high school friends joined fraternities. Both my parents were in Greek life, and I joined a fraternity. And when I was in Greek life, I saw a lot of Xanax going around, both as a sort of anti-anxiety weeknight drug, but more so as this sort of weekend party drug. And I had friends who were dealing, I had friends who were using, I even had friends who were making their own Xanax. And when I became an investigative journalist after college, I had a few questions. One was, you know, why is this anti-anxiety tranquilizer sort of the it drug of our generation? So, you know, you kind of think of uh, the 60s, maybe associated with weed, or if people were having even more fun acid, you know, you think of the 80s, you might think of cocaine. But it's sort of odd that the the sort of it party drug, the most common thing I really saw at parties, maybe besides weed or in the more extreme parties, it really was the most common thing, is something that was designed for panic attacks and seizures. So I wanted to investigate that. And then also I had the kind of simple question of where are all these drugs coming from? Because I was seeing a lot of fake Xanax. It wasn't coming from CVS or Pfizer. It was coming from uh, kind of these unmarked boxes that people would ship to dorm rooms. And so I did the very investigative journalist thing of Googling a uh, Xanax bust fraternity. Cause most <laughs> of the Xanax I saw was in fraternity life. And the first result was this great piece in the Charleston post and courier about a small time campus drug ring. And it said they gotten caught with 44,000 Xanax pills so I started doing some reporting, thinking it could be a magazine story or something. And then a uh, a defense attorney let it slip that it was actually closer to 3 million Xanax pills. And Amazing. that's kind of what got me down to Charleston. Amazing. Now, you interviewed more than 120 people, right, for this for this book? I did, yeah. And, you know, it was, it was hard at first because fraternity bubbles very closed off. And, you know, people don't really want to talk to you if you're sort of even want to learn about hazing, let alone drug trafficking and murder and, and all sorts of things. But yeah, you know, sort of slowly you start to earn the the trusted sources. You read thousands of police files. You talk to as many people as you can. And ultimately, you know, people start recommending, oh, you should talk to my friend. You should talk to my friend. 
and sort of ultimately led me to the the main character in the book, Mikey Schmidt, who was serving 10 years in prison and at the time had a black market cell phone smuggled to him in his jail cell. And so we started talking and once kind of we, you know, once he sort of learned how much I knew about the story, he felt ready to tell his side of the story and and things really opened up from there. He doesn't have a phone anymore, but it was uh, <laughs> yeah. a while with it was, you know, we were kind of captive audiences for each other. It sounds, though, that you approached this forthrightly. And what I mean is that you didn't disguise what you were doing when you were talking to all these people. You said, listen, I'm writing a book or I'm doing a story about this phenomenon and I want you to talk to me. You didn't, in essence, go undercover or was a part of it undercover? No, I mean, it really was all, hey, I'm writing a, a story. You know, it started by just, I want to write about Xanax on college campuses and Xanax and fraternities. And then once I found this specific story, it became, I'm writing about, you know, this specific drug ring and the the murder and the the police stings and the betrayals and, you know, all of that. But no, I, I never went undercover, although, you know, as a Southern guy, who was in a fraternity, I definitely led with that when I would talk to mm-hmm. these guys because it is a very closed bubble. And I think the fact that I kind of spoke the language and sort of at least had one foot inside the bubble made a huge difference in the beginning. And the fact your parents were in that world as well. Definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's all, you know, it's all pretty multi-generational. Something I, you know, you kind of, find we start to look into fraternities and i think it's it's something that's not really talked about enough because it's often talked about through the lens of of race or gender and those are important lenses but really the the greek life system is sort of a breeding ground for the american elite right it's like Mm -hmm. that statistic you read in the beginning there's also the statistic you know something like over 70 percent of every dollar given to um, American universities comes from Greek life alumni. So it just gives you a sense of the amount of wealth in in that system. And it's kind of always been that way. When fraternities started in the 1800s, they started basically because up until that point, American universities were only for the elite, basically only kids from only men from sort of upper crust families went to schools like, you know, Princeton or Amherst or all those sort of old American, mostly Northeastern schools. And then in the 1800s, all of a sudden, middle class students started showing up, mostly to study to become pastors. And all the guys from, you know, elite areas basically looked around and said, well, we don't want to drink with those guys. So how can we start our own club? And that's kind of what fraternities have always been. And they kind of still are that. And because of that, you have this system that just repeats and repeats. And it's sort of like you talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, my dad was a K.A. His daddy was a K.A. And I'm a K.A. And it's almost funny. You can look at the composites which is the sort of the collection of photos of every member in a fraternity if you go to these old fraternity houses you can look at the composite from 2022 and the composite from 1902 and you'll see the same haircuts the same (laughs) the same racial makeup and sometimes even the same last names and so yeah there's this sense of this kind of continuity that uh people are very protective of is there a danger of inbreeding in a sense, not sexual inbreeding, but just as you describe Greek life through the century? Uh, is there a chance of inbreeding where it becomes a little too cult-like, a little too groupthink, and then certain things are tolerated that wouldn't be tolerated in the larger society, such as the Xanax issue? 
Definitely. I mean, I think anytime you see sort of a closed off bubble where there's a lot of secrecy and sort of these rituals that just take on a sort of momentum of their own, you know, there's also obviously a lot beautiful about tradition. But when the tradition involves, you know, waterboarding a kid and during pledge, you know, hell week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's there's a dangerous level of, of groupthink there. But the weird thing is, you know, I think another thing people get wrong about fraternities is they imagine kind of, you know, the way fraternities are written about. People imagine that kids kind of get tricked into joining them by these nice older guys who kind of charm them, bring them in, give them punch and cookies. And the next thing you know, the boys are being, you know, paddled in a basement and it, and they regret it for the rest of their lives. But when I talk to guys and, you know, this is true in my own fraternity as well. People love to tell their hazing stories. People knew they were going to get hazed when they went in. And most guys you talk to, you know, don't really regret it. They think it was either funny or formative or, you know, led to trauma bonding. So it's this sort of odd thing where maybe the group think is just so strong that a guy will look you in the eyes and say, like, I don't regret getting waterboarded so I could become an SAE. Mm hmm. I, it's funny because I was thinking about the word Xanax. That could be the name of a fraternity as well. Yeah, that's you know, funny. In that sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. Here, um, I'm going to go pledge for Xanax now. You know, yeah, that's, exactly. That's yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly some guys basically did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but did but you, yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, did, did you, you mentioned earlier, you put, you had a great opportunity because of your connection with Greek life to get information, but did you ever hear back after the book came out? from any of these people you talked to or others that felt that you, quote-unquote, betrayed them or betrayed the Greek life because you exposed this situation? You know, the people who've been reaching out to me, for the most part, have been like, you know, thank you for shining light on this issue or think you got the story right. You know, I think if a few people, it's funny, people really quibble about their ranking in the Greek ecosystem. So at College of Charleston, you know, some people think SAE, you know, a lot of people agree that SAE and Pike are the two best fraternities there, but there are guys in other fraternities like Kappa Sig who were upset that I said that SAE was the best. <laughs> so they're objecting to that part of it, but not in terms of the expose. Exactly. But I do think it, it has been, if you look at, for instance, like the Goodreads reviews or something, which I've stopped doing after day one, uh, <laughs> but I did, but uh I do think there are some guys in the fraternities who haven't even read the book who then go on and just bash it. But ultimately, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of fascinating to me. A lot of guys in this story, especially when they found out that Sony Pictures had optioned the book before it came out, they wanted to talk to me because they they, you know, they would say, "Can I play myself in the movie?" <laughs> So I think there's also there's some almost element of uh, I don't know if pride is the right word, but like yeah, it, you know, ego so much maybe of, ego. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of being a, a fraternity guy in the best fraternities is basically look what I can get away with. Look at how crazy my weekend was. Look at how wild I am. And there's prestige in that because you can only really afford to go out seven nights a week and break a bunch of things and burn things and break the law and still get away with it. If you're in a position of pretty incredible power 
it's like, oh, I can still, I can get a DUI, but my parents will bail me out. Or oh, I can miss class all year, but my family connections will still get me a great internship when the year is over. And, you know, our fraternity can burn down a log cabin, which is something that basically happens in the beginning of the book, but the alumni will step in and pay for it. And I think this story in some ways is a very extreme example of the sort of, uh, prestige that comes with breaking a lot of rules and i think there's a maybe perverse sort of pride in basically saying yeah look at look at how crazy we were well you referenced the the alumni it would seem to me that when you reach a certain age and you're out in society and regular society for a period of time that maybe you try to dampen down some of that privilege for people that are getting into problems because doesn't that create a culture of Amorality after a while? Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that it does. But I think I, I'm always surprised, you know, and it's usually a small sliver of alumni. There's often, you know, a lot of alumni sort of enjoy their fraternity and then they move on and they become more interested in their country club or, or whatever it is they join next or their, their church or their Fortune 500 company or, or whatever. But you do meet these alumni who, continue to come back every year for tailgates or dad's weekend, or they try to join, you know, the board of the chapter who so much of their life is really wrapped around. Like, how can I continue? You know, I had to go through this. I, you know, why, you know, why, why can't boys go through it now? And that, yeah, that never really goes away. Did you ever fear for your safety when you were investigating and writing this story? Again, it's called Among the Bros. A fraternity crime story published by Harbor Books. Did you ever feel your life was in danger or there was some harm that could befall you? So, yeah, anytime you're investigating a murder and drug trafficking, there's obviously going to be fear. You know, I've done stories about corrupt Thai, corrupt military juntas, Southeast Asian, Vietnamese Canadian drug traffickers who are connected to El Chapo. And in some senses, this was a, a tougher reporting haul. Than those stories, people are even more closed off in the fraternity bubble than they are in those other bubbles. But at the same time, I think the fear is more maybe a lawsuit or a mean Goodreads review than it is violence, just because we are mostly talking about the main enforcement mechanism in this in this drug ring wasn't violence, although violence did occur. The main enforcement mechanism was sort of the social pressure of Greek life and people not wanting to look bad among their boys. And so, yeah, there were some moments of fear, you know, investigating specifically the murder of Patrick Moffley. But I think ultimately, you know, it was it was okay. And now that I'm done reporting and now that I'm not going to ever look into it again, I think we can all move on and, you know, keep our lives going. Well, there's a big jump between what you called the, uh, well, I'm going to paraphrase it, the hijinks that normally go on, including, if you will, the burning of the log cabin and other things you can get away with to this major distribution of drugs. So how did yeah. it morph into that? And were any alumni involved as part of that? Or did any, any alumni react negatively to your story about the fact that look at look where it's gotten out of control here or out of hand? Definitely. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I sort of thought of it as you're on a, you're at a beach party and 
the sun is shining and someone hands you a beer and everything's fun and then you step into the water and the water feels good and you're still drinking and then you start swimming out a little further from the water and the party's still going on everything's crazy and while you're sort of drinking in the water you feel the riptide pull you out a little further and further but you're so distracted by the party that by the time you look around you're thrashing you know miles away from the shore and you have really no idea how you got there and I do think that's sort of the experience a lot of these guys is at every step of the way, there were no consequences Mm -hmm. for whatever smaller laws they were breaking, whether it was, you know, felony hazing, whether it was drug possession, small time drug dealing, kidnapping that happened during a pledge night, all these things ended up in, in really no consequences for anyone. And To me, if there is sort of an eat your vegetables sort of moral lesson about the book, it might be about the consequence of a life without consequences, because at each step of the way, these guys will get away with something. And I think the sort of natural conclusion, if you can get away with anything, is to see how much you can get away with. And they continued to push and push. And yeah, it ultimately did get into big time drug trafficking. But even then, of everyone who is involved, dozens and dozens of boys, only one is in jail right now. Mm-hmm. And one fraternity, Cap Alpha Order, was kicked off campus, but came back four years later. And the other SAE was never kicked off campus at all. And so if anything, that sort of never ending party and lack of consequences just continued. Similar to the broken windows theory, if you don't catch crime when it's just a broken window, it just keeps escalating. Into yeah. And I think, you know, on some level, it's not even, you know, I I don't think this book is arguing for stronger drug laws. But when you have this sort of obviously very uneven system where some people, if you have the right lawyers or the right connections or the right amount of money can get bailed out of basically anything, then, you know, it's pretty natural to sort of keep hitting your head against the wall and (laughs) thinking you're not going to get a concussion. Right. What was the reaction of the College of Charleston to the book? You know, I, I had some good conversations with some people from the, the CFC before the book came out. But I haven't actually heard from them since. And I I don't, they didn't release a statement or anything as far as I know. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, but I'm, I'm not actually sure. What was the most surprising thing you found out in your reporting and investigation over that time period? Was there anything there that shocked you particularly, given your background in Greek life? Not that all Greek life is the same as what you wrote the book about, but just were there things that shocked even you? Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't until about six months to a year into reporting that I found out that the same chapter that the president of the fraternity and then two other boys were arrested in this drug ring and they had other boys involved as well. So it's one of the central nodes of the drug ring. Four years before the drug bust, they had basically three boys die within six months and two die in one weekend. Two were recent alumni, but they still were involved. The fraternity one was an active member. But I do think I was su- surprised. Three deaths in half a year and two deaths in one weekend is you would think this sort of thing that everyone would talk about, everyone would know about, that there would have been some massive consequence for. But instead, I guess part of it is the system of college. You know, the institutional memory gets wiped out every four years. 
but most kids didn't even know it had happened. And so you have this drug bust that's, you know, massive in scale occurring in 2016. And then you look back at that same chapter four years earlier, having all those deaths and nothing sort of being learned or changed from it. That did, that did really surprise me. Was there any pushback from the families of the, the boys that were dead? In other words, did, did they go against that Greek wall? You know, the so I talked to two of the three families, and both of them wanted to make it very clear that they didn't blame the fraternities or the college, that, you know, they their children were responsible for their own choices in terms of, you know, substance use and, and everything else. But... Of course, there was also, yeah, just I think the parents also wanted to talk because they wanted to warn other parents about, hey, look, for instance, like your kid is probably going to see a lot of Xanax when they show up to college. And a lot of kids, when they show up to college, they don't know anything about Xanax. They're warned about smoking weed or they're warned about binge drinking or maybe, you know, whichever drugs we deem hard drugs. But Xanax is, in some sense, much harder a drug than the things we call hard drugs. It's one of two substances you can die from withdrawals. It's so addictive. And in the same amount of time, the last 20 years, that fentanyl and opioid overdoses have gone up 8x. I want to say Xanax overdoses have gone up 10 or 12x. So we're really looking at sort of a hidden epidemic here. And those parents really did want to kind of share that and warn other parents. What is it about the mentality within that world, though, that, as you just outlined, this is a dangerous drug. So they're, in essence, glamorizing the drug, even though there are deadly consequences in some cases. Is there nobody in that system, and I say that system, unofficial system, the life, there's nobody that takes a step back and says, you know, maybe we shouldn't be pushing this stuff, and maybe we should do something else. Maybe go back to beer. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly you will find people, you know, I talked to a few guys at KA at CFC, for instance, who said, yeah, I stood up at a chapter meeting and was like, you know, why are y'all taking so much of this? Why are y'all dealing so much of this? But these things kind of tend to have a momentum of their own. And because, like you said, it's an unofficial system in a lot of ways, in some ways, it's a very formal system, you know, you, there's pledgeship and houses and traditions Mm -hmm. and things, but also it's this sort of informal roving party some kids opt in, some kids opt out, and there seems to be too much social cost at sort of being the prude that wants to say, hey, guys, why don't we order a pizza instead? You know what I mean? So I think the a lo- the response often is sort of just keep your head down and, and do what you're going to do if you don't want to be doing Xanax, I guess. So in other words, you could be still participating in Greek life without taking Xanax, just don't yell about it or talk about it or argue about it. Exactly. And, you know, that having been said, you also see, and I, I saw this in the book, people will spike the punch at parties with Sanex. And this was very common at a lot of different fraternities. And that's the kind of thing where ultimately only, you know, one or two guys have to decide that's what we're going to do at a party, but everyone is going to reap the consequences of, of it especially the female guests. So it's in some ways, everyone's implicated sometimes. And sometimes it's something that you can kind of tell yourself, oh, that's happening over there. And I don't have anything to do with it. 
It just seems, based on, on your writing, that you have the system in place, both formal and informal or official and unofficial, that certain things go on. And there's a larger community, which is the college administration and faculty as well. And it would seem that the tail's wagging the dog, I guess is what I'm saying. Is that true in that sense, that there's not a big push for the administration of a college to enforce certain basic laws and basic mores and basic morality, I guess, for want of a better Yeah, term. yeah. I mean, in some senses, you know, you'll see, for instance, in 2016, there was a huge net at a lot of schools on fraternity systems, and a lot of chapters were getting what people thought was kicked off campus. Instead, they were actually getting suspended, and they most of them came back after four years, just like what happened at College of Charleston. But there is this broader sort of push and pull that started in the 60s of the in locos parentis laws of basically college administrations used to sort of see themselves as having this sort of paternal role over students. Mm -hmm. And part of the sort of 60s protests that happened at a lot of college campuses was basically to say, like, hands off, like, we don't want a curfew. We don't want you telling us what we can or can't do. We don't want you policing our morality. And I do think we're still seeing the fruits of that in a lot of great ways, but also, you know, the flip side can be a lot of this stuff is pretty unregulated. And I think especially once you get these sort of off-campus mansions, which, you know, fraternity houses often are, mm -hmm. <laughs> that are sort of owned by alumni housing boards. They're not run by the school, but they're also in an area where the only policemen are sort of campus policemen with golf carts and flashlights. It's this weird sort of middle zone where they're on private property, but they're on a college campus. They're adults, but really they're kind of kids with, you know, using their parents' money. And it's this very sort of sweet spot for some pretty wild behavior. Before I let you go, what do you want people to take away from your book? Well, I mean, I think I certainly didn't want to spoon feed any messages and on some ways, you know, it's like a page turning crime story with lots of twists and absurd characters and behavior. But I do want people to think about the consequence of a world without consequences. And I also do want people to think about, you know, why are these guys whose social safety net is so plush, it's basically a hammock, you know, guys with really everything you could ever want. And, you know, the late American empire at the very top of the social pyramid. Why do these guys feel so anxious that they need to black out on anti-anxiety tranquilizers? What's going on? And I think the book gives some answers to that question, but it also, you know, hopefully just opens up that question for any reader. And, and yeah, I think that that's a good starting point for, for a takeaway. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Max Marshall. He's author of Among the Bros, a fraternity crime story published by Harper Books. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Max Marshall, go to max-marshall.com, and you can follow him on X at underscore will never tweet. And Max, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.